Y'all know I, I pick on a certain pastor in Texas, right? I ain't mad at him no more. I'm mad at this brother right here. This guy right here is the church's vicar, the archdeacon Glenn Cardi. He is the pastor of, let me catch this, St. Matthew in the city church. It's an Anglican church in Auckland, New Zealand. Well, the vicar said people don't pay enough attention to, to Christmas. So he decided to put up a sign last year. This is it right here. It's a really unhappy looking guy right next to an unhappy looking woman in bed. And on her head, she has the whole Virgin Mary blue and white cloth thing. I tried to get it for the screen, but it won't, it won't transfer. And on the top of the billboard, it says, Poor Joseph, God was a hard act to follow. This is the Christmas sign in front of a massive, massive church in Auckland, New Zealand. And his idea of Christmas is, Poor Joseph, God was a hard act to follow. And everybody got upset last year. Everybody was outraged that this jerk would reduce Christmas to something that petty. Well, this year, he went above and beyond the call, everybody. This year, in front of this massive stone cathedral, this beautiful 200-year-old church, you know what the billboard is this year? It's the Virgin Mary all in her black robes and her little white frame, and she's sitting there like this, <gasps> with an early pregnancy test in her hand. Now, hang on. Hang on, I want you to listen to this because I couldn't believe that a pastor who stands in a pulpit would say something this stupid. He said right here, he says, um, the billboard portrays Mary, Jesus' mother, looking at a home pregnancy test kit, revealing that she is pregnant. He says, irregardless of any premonition, I'm like, wait a second, premonition? Gabriel said, you are with child. And she said, wait a second, I'm a virgin. He said, don't worry about it. God will take care of it. And at the end of that, remember what Mary does? She sings the Magnificat. If you were growing up Catholic like I did, you know what that is. That's her praise to God for him making her worthy to bear the Messiah. Now, what he says right here is he says, this pregnancy would shape her future. I agree. He says Mary was unmarried, young, and poor. That was a lie. That was a truth, and that was a lie. She was officially married to Joseph. She was betrothed. In the, in the Hebrew culture, she was as good as married. She was young, yeah, 14, 15, but that was common in her day. And it says she was poor. How does he know she was poor? Well, apparently the congregation of the good vicar is poorer people in the areas of New Zealand. So he wanted them to relate to the Virgin Mary. This is the part I love, Ken. You need to write this one down, buddy. She was certainly not the first woman in this situation nor would she be the last. And I went, hang on a second. She was not the first virgin to be found pregnant in history. Hmm, let's look that one up in the Bible. And I said, this guy is an idiot. He's a pastor of a massive church. He has thousands and thousands of dollars to throw at these massive paintings, which, which are, just, are huge in front of the church. This is his thing. The aim of the billboard for the last two years has been to lampoon or to make fun of the literal interpretation of the Christmas conception story. What is the good vicar saying? The Bible doesn't really mean Mary was a virgin. It doesn't really mean that Jesus was the Son of God. He says, why are we concerned about this? He says, is the true story of Christmas about a spiritual male God sending down sperm so that a child would be born or is it about the power of love 
in our midst as seen in Jesus. This idiot, this jerk is saying Christmas is not about the Messiah. It's not about hope. It's not about overcoming sin. Christmas is about helping the poor. It's about identifying with those less fortunate. Now, I'm sorry. Those of you who are doing the Baptist faith, the message, the scripture came for what purpose? To tell us to feed the hungry? No. To tell us to care for the less fortunate? No. To tell us to take care of unwed mothers? No. That is not the purpose of the Bible. What is the purpose of the word of God? To show us our need for salvation and to tell us where salvation can be found. Amen? Amen. That's the purpose. This man is perverting, and I mean that literally, he is perverting Christmas to make it stand for something that it's not. Now, I found this after I had already printed the sermon for this week. So I want to answer the question. Is it Christmas yet? Well, here, what are the unmistakable signs of the Messiah? Because the good vicar doesn't understand the word of God. The good vicar doesn't understand what's happening. Let's look at this this morning. We have a lot of scriptures to cover. They'll be on the screen, and I want to go through them because I don't want you to be fooled by all this bleeding heart nonsense. Christmas is about one thing, the salvation of the human race. It begins at Christmas, and it culminates on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Here it is. Let's get this back to the beginning. Malachi 3.1. Remember, Malachi is the last Old Testament prophet. He is the last one who will speak. After him, there are 400 years of silence. For 400 years, God does not speak to the people of Israel. He finishes with Malachi. And what does Malachi tell them as the last message from God? Here it is. Malachi 3.1. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I call this the prophet speaks again. The prophet speaks again. Why? Because Malachi is going to finish up the Old Testament prophecies by saying, all right, God's going to send a messenger. The word messenger is the word herald. You know what a herald is, don't you? If you study history, you ever watch those Robin Hood movies? All those guys running around in tights and little dresses? Yeah, a herald was the guy with the foofy hat and the little horn, and he would ride into town and he would blow his little horn. He would say, hear ye, hear ye, the king has spoken. And then he would tell you the king's message. That was what a herald did. Well, it says right here, I'm going to send a herald and he will clear the way for the king. He will clear the way for the messenger of the Lord. You see, Malachi knows he's it. He's the last one to speak. Now he leaves them with the promise, yes, God's going to be silent for a while. But when the word of God comes, when the messenger arrives, then you know the time of the Messiah is near. You see, the good vicar has forgotten something. The job of the pastor is to be a herald for God's message. My job as a pastor, your job as a parent, your job as an aunt or an uncle is to tell those around us, Jesus is coming back. He came the first time, just like he said, and he's going to come back, just like he said. Why is Malachi's statement so important? Because Malachi is echoing the sentiments of another great prophet of God. That's the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 43 through 5 is going to pick up because it actually precedes by several hundred years. It says this, 
Malachi, um, Isaiah 43 through 5. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight a highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God had prophesied through Isaiah the Messiah would come. Now Malachi picks that up and he gives that as his parting message before God becomes silent for all those years. I tell you this, in churches around America and around the world, the voice of the prophet is silent this Christmas. Many pastors will step into a pulpit, and you know what they're going to tell you? You need to give money to relief organizations to help the poor. You need to donate your clothes. You need to provide money for the poverty-stricken. You need to help out these uh, early birthing centers to help women give birth to their babies and give them a safe environment. Every message this Christmas in many pulpits is going to be about your neighbor, your brother, your friend. And all they're going to say is give, 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 help, help, help. Here's the problem. You can take a man who doesn't know Jesus Christ and you can feed him. You know what you're going to have? You're going to have a lost man who's full. You can take a lost man who's been filled up with food and you can give him nice clothes. You can give him a good job. You can help him get a house. You know what you're going to have? You're going to have a happy sinner living his way into hell. Because he thinks Christmas is about what you can give him physically and tangibly and touchably. But Christmas is not about that. It's about this. Isaiah 40 is so important. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Whenever the king would come to a province under his control, he would send the herald. The herald would say, the king's coming. Get things ready. You know what folks would do? They would clean up the villages. They would clean up the cities. They would make it pretty. Think about it. If, if you're in the United States and oh, Barack Obama's going to come to your little town or your little area, aren't you going to clean the place up and repaint and spiff it up? Of course. It's the president. He's coming. But they would also do something else. They would send out teams into the roads, and they would clean up the roads. Now, y'all seen roads in the old days, right? There was rocks, and there were boulders, and things got thrown on the road. Well, here's the thing. The king rode in a carriage, and the king did not want to be uncomfortable, and rocks and pebbles make the ride uncomfortable. See, they didn't have shock absorbers back in the day, so you felt every rock, every, every jolt. They would send out men to clear the roads, to level the roads, because, you know, a natural road will be broken up and unshifted by, by, by just the passage of time as it cools and heats up. and You've seen our highways here in Raleigh. I mean, if it gets really, really hot and everything gets soft and then it gets cold and the ground gets broken and you get potholes and you get cracks in the road, they would go out and smooth out the road so the king would have the smoothest possible ride into his territory. But that wasn't what the prophet of the Lord was supposed to do. He was supposed to say, hey, guys, get yourselves ready to experience the king. Get yourself ready to meet your king. Think about this Christmas. If God came to our church, would he find people concerned about righteousness or holiness? Would he find people concerned about reaching their neighbors for Jesus Christ or making an impression? Yeah, we had the tooth truck here. Fantastic. Yeah, we helped 34 people with dental work. Fantastic. I think the real work was being done in here. 
by people who would sit and talk to the patients who were waiting. And we gave them Bibles, and we prayed with them, and we shared with them the meaning of Christmas and why we were doing the things we were doing. It's great that they left with a filling, but it would have been better if they would have left with the filling of the Holy Spirit, if they had gotten saved, if they had come to the Lord. I talked to most people that were in here. Most of them did not have a church. George, who sat right back there, where Eugene is, George sat right there. And I said, George, you got a church? He said, I don't have a church, but I help out at the homeless shelter. I said, George, aren't you homeless? He says, yes. And you help out at the homeless shelter? He says, yeah. Some people got it worse than me. George had to be in his late 60s, early 70s. He sat right there, Eugene, where you are. And he was just grateful that he still had enough strength in his body to go down to the soup kitchens and serve other people. You see, that's the attitude we need to have, the attitude of George, which is, you know what? I may not have a pot of soup to give you, but I can give you peace, eternal peace with Jesus Christ by sharing with you the gospel and what that means. You see, why is it so important that Malachi says there's a messenger coming? Because Isaiah says it. And beyond that, Matthew says this, Matthew 11, 7 through 10. As these men went out, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, meaning John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go to see a reed swaying in the wind? A lot of preachers are like reeds swaying in the wind. Whichever direction the wind blows in the church, that's the way they preach. If the people lean this way politically, he preaches that way. If the people lean this way theologically, he preaches that way. He preaches to the movement of the wind. He said, did you come to see someone who preaches to please people? He asked him that question. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? Look, those who wear soft clothes are in a king's palace. They were official prophets in Israel. Prophets paid by the king, supported by the king. They had the best clothes, the best houses, the best food, and they would preach exactly what the king wanted them to preach. There have been lessons in history. Dictators who've taken over nations. Dictators who said to the church, if you want to keep your church open, pastor, priest, bishop, then you're going to preach this, and you're not going to preach that. And you know what? They were pastors who made the decision to preach the gospel, and they wound up in jail, and they wound up dead. Look at the annals of pastors in World War II. Pastors who stood against Hitler died in prison. And then there were those pastors who said, absolutely, mein Führer, I will preach whatever you tell me to preach. And they preached the glory of of the German fatherland, and they preached the righteousness of the Führer. There's one picture taken of Adolf Hitler that was hanging in a, in a school, a children's school. And the picture had Adolf Hitler on a horse with the Nazi flag as a standard. And, and the people who ran that school, I'm not going to say that they were nuns, because that, be that would be not nice. But they let the children sing a song every morning. And it wasn't the national anthem. And it wasn't praise God from whom all blessings flow. Do you know what they sang every morning? Praise be Adolf Hitler, our Fuhrer, our Savior. When you don't have the integrity to stand up for the truth, you get an Adolf Hitler, you get a Nazi Germany. People, it happened there. It could happen here. It could happen in Auckland, New Zealand, when pastors think they're smarter than the Bible 
when they think, well, science says a virgin couldn't give birth. So let's not preach that. Let's preach, be kind to women who are pregnant early in their lives, and let's help them get through it. I'm not saying we shouldn't help teenage pregnancy cases. I think we should. I think the church should be the first ones to say to a 13 or 14 or 15-year-old, you're pregnant? Wow. Let us help you through that by introducing you to Jesus Christ, helping you repent of the sin and helping you move on into a life that can be redeemed. Someone asked me about generational curses. Sometimes the curse is this. We don't set a standard for our children because we don't live by a standard. We don't live what we preach. We don't practice it. And believe me, my daughter will never do anything I say. But praise God, she'll do everything I do. You understand what I mean? You can preach it all day long, but if they don't see it in your life at home when no one's watching, they won't believe it. They believe what they see, not what they hear. Children are wonderful that way. He goes on to this in Matthew. He says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet. This one, meaning John the Baptist, this is the one it is written about. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist was older than Jesus. They were cousins, but he was older. He should have been superior to Jesus because he was older. In the Hebrew culture, age was everything. Here's the thing. John bowed to Jesus. When Jesus came to be baptized, what did John say? He said, whoa, I need to be baptized by you, not you by me. And Jesus said, just do this. Because Jesus was setting an example. If he could be obedient to the customs, so could everybody else. John the Baptist was born and lived for 30 years. At 30 years of age, he took up his ministry. He ministered for six months. At the end of six months, when Jesus was ready to do his ministry, when Jesus came back out of the wilderness, he came back out to assume his place. Shortly after that mark, John the Baptist did a great thing. He stood before the king himself, before the king's palace, and said, you are an adulterer, because Herod had taken the wife of his own brother, Philip, to be his wife. That's just nasty, people. That's nasty. And nobody said anything. The hired priests of the temple didn't say anything. The hired wise men didn't correct him. But one hairy little Baptist said, you did wrong. What happened? They threw John in jail, but Herod couldn't kill him because the people believed in him. So what happened? Well, his new wife's daughter got up there, did a strip tease on the brass pole, and got Herod to agree to give her half the kingdom. And then she went to her mom, Mom, what do I ask for? She said, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. She did, and because Herod had promised publicly to give her half of his kingdom. He had to kill the man of God. But God allowed it to happen. Why? Because John's purpose in being born was to be a messenger, to be a herald. I asked this question last night, and I'll ask it again today. If you knew the purpose of your life was to live and to train and to prepare your whole life just to serve God for six months and then die, is it worth it to serve God? Let me give you the answer. It's worth it. If you prepare your whole life to do only one thing, 
to announce the Messiah's coming, then it's worth it. You know, it's worth it. So what if you don't live to 90 or 100? So what if you never get wealthy? So what if you never get married? You stay faithful to the place God calls you. And even though it's hard, John did not want to be in prison. John did not want to be there. He sent his own, his own disciples. He says, go ask Jesus, are you the one that we're waiting for? Or is there another? John was having his moment of doubt. Because he was in prison. He knew what was going to happen to him. He was scared. Any of us would be scared to follow God into such a place. Amen? They came back and Jesus, who loved John passionately, said, you just go tell him what you've seen and you've heard. The blind can see and the lame can walk. Why? Those are all prophecies of the Messiah to prove who Jesus was. Jesus said of John the Baptist, of all the men born to women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. However, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. That means the least of us who serve God actually has a greater impact than John the Baptist. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But that's what God has called you to. He's called you to a life of purpose. Do you see the purpose in your life? You say, I'm homeless. I'm single. Uh, I don't have a job right now. I just lost my job. You are where God has put you. What do you do with where you are? I've said it before. You will see people every day that I will never meet. People will listen to you that will never listen to me because of who I am and where I am. You have the greatest blessing on earth. You have been called, you have been saved to be a herald of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be a modern-day John or Jane the Baptist. That's your calling. But that's what happens when the prophet speaks. He says, now the Messiah is coming. Now it's time. Now it's Christmas. But you know what else? Then the prophecy arrived. The prophecy that they had been waiting for all those years came. This is what it says in Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. See, this is why I think the guy in Auckland, New Zealand, has got to be stupid. Because he missed that one. In the, all of his Bible reading, he missed Isaiah 7.14. And I've heard this one. I told him last night, this is the History Channel and their infinite wisdom figured out how the virgin birth happened. Did you know that? The History Channel, with all of their science, figured out how the virgin birth happened. They said this, Mary was a special woman. We all knew that one, right? So what happened, you see, Mary was descended or evolved from a certain strain of African frog. And we're thinking, what? Well, there's a, there's a frog in Africa, you see, and it can self-replicate. And I, I like the way the guy put it on the show. He, said, he says, you know, that, that's no fun, but it's really efficient. You got to love scientists. They just say stuff like that. And here's the thing. Since these frogs can do this, Mary must have evolved from this frog. And she kept the genetic ability to self-replicate, to, to, to be her own parent, I guess. It's weird. And you know what? This was a serious program. Why is the world so desperate to get rid of Mary's virgin birth? Why is this guy painting a picture of her with a pregnancy test as if she's scared? Because if you have a virgin birth, you have a unique child who has never been seen and never will be seen again until he comes back. That's why they're scared. 
Because if Jesus was born of a virgin, he was the single greatest human being ever born because he was God in the flesh. And that means that the Bible's true. If the Bible's true, we are all accountable to God. Amen? But go back even further. Why is it so important that Isaiah said, the virgin will conceive and have a son? Simple. Genesis 3.15 is the very first prophecy of the Messiah. Adam and Eve just got their hind ends kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They just got kicked to the curb for sin. And God gives them hope. They had just sinned against God. They had just lost that relationship. Death had just entered the world for the first time. And God gives them hope. I will put hostility between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, of course, and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Everyone says that this is a, this is a translation problem. No, it's not. Literally, it says between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay, anybody here take biology in school? Where's the seed found? In the man or the woman? Right, in the man. Because the egg is found in the woman. You don't got to be a nurse to know that one. Here's the problem with this. This says the seed is in the woman. Now that means there's no man involved. Somehow God created, and God spoke us into existence from the dust of the earth. I think he could make a baby appear in the womb, amen? I think God's got that much power at least. This promise in Genesis is that there would be something born of the woman that had nothing to do with the man and it would be purely of God. Now, why is that important? Do you know Joseph could not have been the father of Jesus? It's impossible. Because we know the Messiah is descended from who? David, right? The root of Jesse. So, David is the one through whom the Messiah has to come. Now, we all know Joseph is from the city of Bethlehem, right? He's from the descent of David. Did you know that Joseph could not be the father? Because if you go back in the lineage of Joseph, there's a man named Jeconiah. Jeconiah had sinned against God, and God put a generational curse on him. No child coming from you will ever sit on the throne of David. Yet the Messiah has to sit on the throne of David to fulfill the last prophecy. Now, wait a second. If Joseph, who's descended from David, has a generational curse or a block on him, and he can't be the father... How is Jesus descended from David? Go to Luke. That genealogy is not through, through Joseph. That was through Mary. That's Mary's genealogy. Mary is also descended from David, but through a different brother. She is not affected by the generational curse on Jeconiah because she is descended from an outside line. So she is from the people of David. She is descended from the root of Jesse. She fulfills that prophecy. She is not, does not, does not have her child through Joseph, so the curse is not on the baby. God does it through her and through her alone. That's why it's important that we have Genesis. And that's why it's important that Isaiah picks it up and says a virgin. Everyone fights this. They say that, that that's not the word for a virgin. They say that's the word for a young woman. Well, they had a name for a young woman who was pregnant in the ancient Near East. You know what it was? a target for rocks. A young unmarried woman would have been killed in the ancient Near East. We're not condoning it, we're just saying that's how it was. But this word right here, this is the word Alma in the Hebrew. Now, Alma is a virgin, a woman not touched by any man ever. And you say, oh, but that could be a mistranslation, Pastor. No, it couldn't. 
300 BC, 72 Jews show up in Alexandria, Egypt. They translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And they use a word that means clearly in the Greek, an untouched, unspoiled woman. So the Hebrew and the Greek agreed she was a virgin. That means she is unique in all of history. So when he says she wasn't the first woman in this situation, yes, she was. Nobody else ever experienced the visitation of God. It culminates in Matthew 1, 20-25. But after he had considered these things, speaking of Joseph, who's trying to figure out what to do with Mary now that she's pregnant, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. Okay, Joseph now, who had his doubts, who was trying to figure out how to get rid of this woman without killing her, suddenly God says, don't be afraid. This is not due to anything a man's ever done. She is still what she claims to be a virgin. What's been done to her has been done to her by the power of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Here's the culmination. The Bible is a, is a job of connect the dots. Start in Genesis, go to Isaiah, you wind up in Matthew. Same thing three times. All this was done to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and will give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Now, this is how you know God has spoken. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Interesting thing. Did Jesus have brothers and sisters? Yes, we see them in Scripture. Now, some people say Joseph was an old man. And he had children from a previous marriage. And Mary stayed a virgin for the rest of her existence. You know what I say to that? You ain't never read the Bible. Because this little sentence right here, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son. Let me translate the Greek. He didn't lay a finger on her till the kid came. And once the kid came, all the bets were off. They were married people. That's where you get the brothers and sisters. That's why I never understand why Joseph is always shown as an old man and Mary is a 14-year-old girl. I don't get that. Because scripturally, that's not what it says. To the best we know, Joseph was only 16, perhaps 17. Mary, 14 or 15. Why do we want to read into it the traditions of people who want to change the Bible to give us their own interpretation of it? See, if Mary was a regular woman, just like every other woman, then what is she not? Some kind of holy icon to pray to who's going to have some kind of connection to her son. You have as much influence with the Lord as Mary does. You don't need her in that communications pattern. That's why rosaries are unnecessary. That's why praying to saints is unnecessary. Because this says she was just a woman chosen by God to do an amazingly difficult thing but once she had served god god gave her her life in abundance she was blessed with many children i say this to you who are struggling if you think it's too hard to serve god right now at this point in your life 
you're impatient, you want to get on with your life, you want to move ahead, you, you want to get what you want to get, don't do it. Keep your hand off your life until God gives you back your life. If the Lord's got you in a place in your life right now where you seem to be sitting still or you're stagnant or you're not moving, take a lesson from Joseph and Mary. Wait for the time when God gives you the go-ahead to move forward. Then he will bless you because you're moving along with him and not against him. You can never rush the hand of God. You can't rush the You may feel like you're wasting your life, but if you are redeeming every day serving the Lord, it's not a waste. I promise you. What does this, all this mean? What does all this come to? Well, I stole a line from one of my favorite movies. I, I love the movie The Blues Brothers when they go to the Triple Rock Baptist Church. Reverend Cleophas James and Joliet Jake is standing there and the light's coming through the sanctuary windows. And he looks at it and says, do you see the light? Do you see the, Do you know what you have to do? Here's my question. We've seen what the world wants to do with Christmas. They want to make it about helping the poor. They want to make it about uh, helping pregnant women. And they want to make it about all these other things. And they want to take away the authenticity of the scriptures. But the question is, do you see the light now? Do you see why every verse of scripture is important? You can't get rid of Genesis. You can't get rid of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can't change the word virgin to young girl because it will make you feel better. Because if you do, everything falls apart and there is no reason for Christmas. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, if the forerunner did not come, if the prophet and the herald did not come, then what are we celebrating, really? Nothing but a dressed-up pagan holiday. Three things. God promised to send us a prophet or a herald to let us know the Messiah was coming. John came in the fullness of time. He did his job, and God took him home to glory. Here's the thing. You have a job, church. Your job during this next week is to remind people that Christmas is not about how many gifts they buy you. Ladies, it's not about how much your husband can give you. I know that hurts. I heard the groan from the back. Okay, kids, it's not about getting every present that you want. You're going to get those anyways. You know, guys, it's not about us getting a new tie or new pair of pants or shirt. That's what we get every year anyways. God sent a prophet to tell the world the Messiah was coming. Our job is to tell the world Jesus is coming back. It may not be in six months, it may not be in six years, it may be in 60 years. We may all have to walk the veil. We may all have to die before the time of the Messiah comes. But I'm willing to serve God with everything I've got, amen? And if I have to die to see glory, then so be it. But our job as a prophet is to let him know Jesus is coming back. Two, you know, God told us how special the birth of the Messiah would be. He told us all those things that would happen. He'd be born in Bethlehem. That, you know, there would be all these signs that would point to him. And that's wonderful. We're going to deal with that next week. Here's the thing. Our job today is to tell and remind the world just how special the birth of Jesus was. The greatest indicator of the truth of the Bible is prophecy. Prophecy spoken, prophecy fulfilled. The Old Testament was sealed 400 years before Jesus came. The Old Testament was translated 300 years before Jesus came. I always hear people say the Christians changed the Bible to prove who Jesus was. Nonsense. The Bible was sealed, locked, and translated long before Jesus ever came on the picture. 
So if the prophecies are there, and if they are fulfilled in Jesus, we need to point people to that baby in the manger and remind them it's about that. Last one. 400 years after God made those promises, he did just what he promised he would do, and he'll do it again. The Lord said, if I go away, I'll come back for you, and I'll prepare a place for you that where I am, there you could be also, right? Here's the thing. Whatever house you got, whatever car you got, whatever clothes you got, it's passing goods. It's wood, hay, and stubble. It doesn't mean anything. But what you're doing for eternity this Christmas with your friends and your family and those around you, that could last for eternity. There were some people here Friday that Ken prayed with or I prayed with or, or Dave prayed with or Pastor Mike prayed with. There are some people right there in that group. They may come to Christ in the next few weeks. And we may never know it, Ken. We may never know that they got saved except that the seed was planted here in their hearts, in their hearing, by our testimony. You may share your testimony with somebody this Christmas, and you may never see the result. But when you get to heaven, and you go, hey, what are you doing here? And then you say, hey, why are you shocked? You know, I led you to Christ. You know, you led me to Christ. It could happen. That's our job. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray mercy. I do pray mercy, Father, on Glenn Cardi, the uh, vicar of this church in New Zealand. Father, I, my blood boils when I think of the things he has said and the terrible things he has done. Father, I'm just angry that he has taken away the glory of the virgin birth and he's taken away the sacrifice that Joseph and Mary made and he's, he's made a joke out of it. And Father God, I pray mercy on him that whenever he is alone and when he is quiet, Father God, that conviction will creep into his heart and he will realize he has done nothing but damage and hurt to the kingdom of God and he has not blessed anyone or anything. Father, I just pray that something will happen in New Zealand. A revival will break out. People will rediscover the truth of Christmas and that many will be saved because of this man's actions. And Father, I pray that would happen here. I pray that we will get serious Father, about preaching the gospel, about sharing the Jesus with those who are around us. And Father God, I pray that as we move forward today, we can do so in a spirit of rejoicing. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. You guys remember the bathtub in the back? We got us a baptism to get to. So if I can find my candidate. <laughs>